Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Tim Ludwig. Uh, He's a professor at Appalachian State University, spent over 30 years uh, studying safety, safety culture, and and behavioral safety, Um, written five books, the most recent one around dysfunctional practices, which is a phenomenal read. We're going to talk more about it today on the show. Uh, And his website, safety-doc.com, also a great resource with lots of great themes uh, to to cover. So, uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Uh, very happy to have you with me today. Hey, pleasure to be here with the safety guru, safety doc, and the safety guru spar off. This is going to be a big episode here. <laughs> Hopefully, no sparring, no, no no dangerous activities. But tell me a little bit about how you got into safety and your passion for the work you've done. Well, I, you know, I initially, uh, from my psychology background, was was interested in quality improvement and, mm-hmm. and performance improvement. I came through uh, my doctoral program at the time when TQM and business process reengineering were hot. So I right. saw, I thought, I thought of myself as like a, you know, like trying to get to that level of, of increasing and improving the quality of work in organizations and the like. But uh, at Virginia Tech, where I got my doctorate, I had the pleasure of studying under uh, Scott Geller, who was mm. you know big safety, absolutely uh, applying behavioral principles of safety. They're quite uh, quite well known in that area. And you know, at the time, I was doing safety research, but you know, I told Scott at the time. I don't know about this safety thing. I'm really into quality improvement stuff. And mm-hmm. safety was just a really good laboratory for the kind of principles I was trying to study. And and, right. and indeed, after I got done, uh, I kept kept doing research in safety. But for the next 10 years or so, I was I was working with the U.S. Navy and uh-huh. Department of Energy and other places working on uh, performance improvement, strategic planning and measurement. Uh, and I was really on those lines. And I remember talking to one of my colleagues at the time going, you know, it's a big disconnect. I'm doing all this safety research, but I'm doing all this quality improvement stuff. It doesn't seem to come together. Well, it came <laughs> together. Um, you know, I started uh, getting asked to do speeches and the like because of my research. Sure. And then I noticed, uh, you know, I got, I got something to say here. And then it occurred to me, I remember being up in Newfoundland, working with a bunch of, uh, of, uh, of oil and gas uh, mm-hmm. folks who were actually out on floating barges, you know, floating refineries out in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Right. <laughs> and finally, it <laughs> slapped me upside the head as, I, as I'm talking to these folks going, you know, this is a good mission. You know, keeping right. people safe is, is incredible. And and since then, I drank the Kool-Aid and uh, never looked back. That's that's phenomenal. So uh, let's get to your book. Uh, and I really want to hear a little bit. Of, the subtitle is around uh, you're stupid. Uh, so tell me a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so sorry. What are you stupid? And uh, so tell me a little bit about the story behind it and, and the effect of fishing for fault. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the book is called "Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture," but you know, I was going to call it uh, "You Can't Fix Stupid." But uh, Ron White, <laughs> the comedian, already kind of stole took that, and I didn't want right. to get in trouble or anything like that. But uh, it came from a, a I was I was working with a automobile manufacturing uh, interest who made safety equipment for uh, for automobiles, mm-hmm. international company, and uh, they had asked me to go to a, a plant uh, in neighboring Tennessee about an hour and a half from my house because they had the worst safety record of like all of North America. Mm. And uh, they, in fact, the manager got fired. Uh, uh, the younger manager called me up and, and said, Hey, listen, you know, they gave me the, uh, why don't you come on out? Uh, I got a problem with my employees. You know, they just they don't understand. I've been, I've been working. <laughs> I've been here for a half a year. I'm spending money. When I got here, you couldn't even see the, the clock on the wall because of the oil mist in the air. So I'm, I'm spending money oh, wow. on this place, doing training the whole bit. And, and the, the employees just don't get it. I, I think they're stupid. And I, oh, I, wow. right, I got to go see this. And so I went <laughs> and uh, the, the uh, we were in a boardroom. You could tell that the culture was terrible. They're they're yeah. yelling at each other. They're the employees that were there and the manager. And at the beginning, the manager t- basically says the same thing. And he goes, you know, I've been doing all I can. And mm. the employees just don't seem to get it. And then this one uh, woman who was one of the employees stands up, slams the table and says, what are you calling a stupid? And, and he goes, <laughs> his best Forrest Gump accent, he goes, stupid is the stupid does and then you know boom the room picks up they're arguing with each other and i had to kick the manager out and uh you know about an hour and a half later he comes back and his face was ashen you could tell he just had a fright and he and he said that you know i i didn't want to go back to my office i wanted to kind of understand what you guys are talking about so i went out on the work floor mm-hmm. and i decided to do some work and he said you know i shouldn't be doing any of the, the skilled stuff so, right. so i'm gonna i'm gonna change light bulb you know even a manager can change a light bulb which proved to be incorrect because he said he found himself on the top rung of a step ladder with his manager shoes on you know it's all oily and everything oh holding on the piping and reaching up to to get a, a light bulb and he slipped he kicked it out and he caught himself on the piping and then he went in uh came into our meeting just right afterwards so he had that you know that, that mm-hmm. shaken look <laughs> and of course the that one woman stands up she goes what are you stupid and <laughs> he goes he goes yeah i was stupid and you know i thought they learned something that day <laughs> of course not nobody's stupid okay. you know uh you know I, I tell i tell companies you know how many employees you got here 400 you know, that means there's 400 different kinds of IQ. Everybody mm-hmm. brings something special to the table and you need to right. listen to them. Exactly. And so that, that gave us the opportunity to kind of do more behavioral analysis. You know, why did you use a step ladder instead of a mm-hmm. six foot ladder? And, you know, we found out that, you know, these, these six foot ladders were all the way at the, at the warehouse, you know, like a seven minute walk. And you're asking mm-hmm. employees that are going to change the light bulbs to walk seven minutes and go get a ladder, then walk through this oily place with the ladder and set it back up and go do it. You know, changing the environment changes right. behavior. There's no need Agreed. to label people. And of course, when you call people stupid, that just starts arguments and you know completely <laughs> goes against the chance of learning what the problem is. So, you know, that one really stuck with me. And, and you know, I've heard over the years, uh, you know, stupid and uh, what other words would, would count there? Stupid or when you do an incident investigation and then you end up uh, coming up with a root cause that uh, is human error. Well, that's just another way of calling someone stupid. Right. Oh, then, you know, we need to get done with an investigation and the person needs to be retrained. What, what do you think retraining is? You know, they know <laughs> how to do their job. 
You're calling them stupid. There's just so many ways that in our safety management systems I agree. and in our discussions with other people, we're calling them stupid. And that just goes against the culture. That's going to yeah. kill your culture and make people not talk to you. I, I think it's such an important point. I, I've even seen sometimes incident investigation feels like an interrogation chamber. It's really about trying to find fault, blame somebody. Um, I've seen executives just jump and say, who are we going to fire is all time. My, my favorite was somebody, favorite, I'm not sure if it's a good expression, but it was somebody who was, um, who said, yeah, this person made a stupid mistake and it, it, it cost them their arm. Let me go fire them so they learn a lesson. Uh, which oh, is yeah, really, right. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible mindset. But what, what kind of message are you sending to an entire organization if you do this? Uh, so, so tell me more about the, this fishing for fault and how it shows up. Uh, Cause that's mm-hmm. one of the things that really, in my opinion, really has to change when it comes to organizations and, and, and safety. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of an illusion that, that managers uh, carry that, um, that they can they can actually find what's going on and then and then blame it on the person right right when in fact they perfectly designed the systems to to mm-hmm. you know get the at risk behaviors they're they're looking for but you know they the the tools in the manager toolkit to change behavior are are wide they're variety mm-hmm. you know variety coaching reinforcement modeling uh, and all these other kind of things yeah. uh, but this discipline thing just seems to be the the one in the back pocket and and you know we don't blame <laughs> the managers either you know I, I've talked to many frontline supervisors all the way up to the head of the shop. And, you know, I, I ask them, you know, when you first started becoming a supervisor, when you were on the floor being mm-hmm. an hourly employee, and then you got that promotion, you know, what, what kind of manager did you want to end up being? And they usually said, yeah, somebody who's like supporting my troops and, <laughs> and right. uh, being there, making sure I'm removing barriers or success and, you know, kind of being popular. And then uh, how are you now? Well, you're kind of grumpy, aren't you? You're going around yelling, you know, just uh, just uh, being you know, a little bit on, on edge all the time. So mm-hmm. what happened to you? And, and the problem is they go fishing for faults, right? Yeah. Now, at the beginning, at the beginning, when they were the first brand new manager, they said, hey, I'm going to go around and support people. So, you know, maybe they're going out and they're finding a guy named Josh and, and Josh is doing, <laughs> you know, he, he, Josh has his normal day-to-day activities. But this one day that, that uh, you, you saw him, Eric, he was, yep. um, he was doing, he, he was really just upset with the guard. You know, it kept breaking, kept falling off. And so he just got sick of it. He went and, and to fabrication. They created a new guard. He put it on. You saw that happen. And you're going, hey, Look at this, man. He's he's taking accountability for his own safety. He's mm-hmm. he's upgrading the machine, and then he call you. You call everybody together, you know, the whole team. Hey, I'm bringing you together to 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 tell you what Josh did. This is really great, and I support him completely. Everybody should be more like Josh. Right now, you know, Josh, of course, is embarrassed about that because you know this isn't what he normally does. And so <laughs> you go back the next day, expect you know, getting all excited to see Josh, and his behavior kind of goes back to where it is normally. Right. You know, kind of, and, and he makes mistakes here, and he does good things here, and they go back the next day, and he took off his safety uh, protection, his, his eye eye protection, mm-hmm. you know, wipe his brow. He didn't put it back on, and you see him. He doesn't have his glasses on. You, oh my God, are you kidding me, Josh? I just praised you, <laughs> and that happens because you're not understanding that that there's a there's there's a common way that people are behaving, and if you're not there watching, you catch the good things, you're gonna get punished for praising. Mm-hmm. And and it's because you're not using reinforcement correctly, you know. Right. And and then you know you're out there another day and you go by and Josh is just having a bad day. I don't know what his wife yelled <laughs> at him. He is is tired. He's up all night. Uh, and and he just he really he really kind of blew it this day. You know he he had the guard all the way off. 
he was uh, his fingers were at risk and you go and you see him and then you know you scold him right because right. that's the natural human reaction it's, it's emotional you don't want to see him hurt right. so you scold him and then after you get done scolding him you know you go back the next day guess what you know he's not having that bad day again he's having his normal day and mm-hmm. you see him with his protection on and all this other stuff and and you go hey this scolding thing works but you know what if you right. didn't do anything that day other than kind of help him out he would have gone back there normally. And so this this normal variation mm-hmm. shapes managers into fishing for faults. You know, they 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 think they get this illusion that this punishment or scolding works and praise doesn't. But in right. fact, the science tells us the opposite. So so what happens is they're not actually out there measuring day to day variation and, sure. and where they could support. They're out there just waiting until they find that one fault. And then they dive in and they hold it up like a fish and, you know, they go, I got it. And then they go to their other managers and hold it. Hey, look at this fish. And they act like they're upset. Right. But it's really a trophy. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's terrible. And and then, you know, they, they're reinforced for finding. And then, you know, then they have to, to even bolster it up more. Like, I'm going to fire this person. I'm going to threaten right. them. And, you know, that doesn't that doesn't change behavior. It, what it does is makes people sit up straighter and salute and and you know create secret whistles when you're coming and and that kind. Of, it doesn't help safety performance. Right. It just makes them scared of you. Yeah, it's a little bit like the 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 cop on the side of the road. You slow down when you see the cop car, but it it doesn't necessarily impact your long term behavior. Oh, you're, you slow down to that stupid stop, right? That really <laughs> stupid thing. Turn on. You sit up straighter, don't right. you? I mean, are you going to get a ticket for bad posture? No. <laughs> Maybe you will. <laughs> so, so this concept of fear, uh, very often it's sometimes called accountability. Um, and accountability has a good side, I think, in some cases, but there's also mm-hmm. an accountability, which is code for I'm trying to instill fe- fear. What, what's your thoughts around this and in, in safety? Um, and, and obviously we've talked about the firing. If somebody makes a mistake, how, how do you balance all these things together? Yeah, well, you know, accountability is a behavioral uh, principle. I mean, it's a contingency. In this situation, if you do this, uh, you'll you'll end up in encountering this other thing, right? Sure. So, accountability typically is what we call negative reinforcement, right? You're increasing mm-hmm. behavior, trying to get more of a beha- this behavior uh, by by uh, avoiding something threatening, right? Sure. But you can also have accountability uh, that's positive reinforcement, right? Mm-hmm. If Absolutely. if I do this. In this situation, I'm going to get praise from my boss. I'll have my fellow worker coming up, give me a thumbs up and the like. So, you know, accountability is basically another term for a contingency. But you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, oftentimes accountability is, OK, we're going to list everything that you need to do. And if you don't do it, you are accountable for it. Right. Um, and that's assuming that a safety manager or a boss knows everything it takes to be safe. Like they mm-hmm. can they can codify in rules everything it's going to take to be safe but you could talk to the workers out there you know the rules are only halfway there they're having to they're having to use their own discretion all sure. this time right and so you know when you when you uh, are are using uh, accountability so you then you come in and you scold when it's not happening you do it publicly so everybody can see it right mm-hmm. what's what's happening there well first of all people aren't going to start using their own discretion they're just going to try to to go by the book and believe me going by the book sometimes we'll get you in trouble. So in trouble in terms of getting hurt, you want somebody to use their own discretion, you know, Mm -hmm. see who's working around them, see what the weather's like, understand that this equipment is, is uh, kind of not working like it should. And then, and, and, but if they're afraid of getting in trouble, 
just following the rules is what's going to result. So you, you can actually 100%. get people in worse trouble, right? Then, you know, think about in terms of the culture. If, uh, if um, getting uh, in trouble for not following the rules makes uh, you uh, fearful, the, the manager is going to come over and, and scold you like you, you were scolding Josh, right? So what's going to happen? Our bodies, you know, Pavlov taught us this mm -hmm. way back. Our bodies, when we get scolded, when something negative happens to us, especially if it kind of surprises us, we get a fear response. You know, that's our mm -hmm. animal side. We got to have our, our fear response. And we don't only really get a fear response to the thing that's going to hurt us, like the equipment that could have, that could have, you know, hurt, hurt our body. You know, we also get fear response to the manager when they come in the room. Right. So imagine, you know, how on edge you are when you're afraid of something, you have anxiety, mm -hmm. then your manager comes on the room, creating that in you. You're, you're certainly not more safe there. Yeah. And then think about when a manager, you know, like a good safety program would say, Hey, you know, when something goes bad and, and there's like a near miss or a close call, mm -hmm. we want you to report it. Yeah. Right. You get that fear response anytime your manager comes walking in, you're not <laughs> going to sit here and go to the manager and go, Hey, I want to tell you about where I kind of, you know, screwed up here and uh, right. almost got hurt. And uh, because you're going to have that fear response, you're going to avoid that. So fear stops the conversation. Yep. Plain and simple, right? And, 100%. Uh, and we can't we can't be so boastful to think that managers and safety professionals, even to dedicate their career to this, can come up with every single thing that's going to take to keep somebody safe. Mm -hmm. Right. We need to learn from our frontline workers. And if we're shutting them down, then we're not going to be able to learn. We're going to hurt. Uh, our ability to help them. And uh, I think injuries are going to be more prolific. That's, that's the case in less mature uh, safety cultures. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I, I would say that this, there's, there's a balance that's needed because uh, if things are too loose and there's no process, there's no methods, there's no what, what good could looks like, that can be dangerous. Um, okay. But if at the other end of the spectrum, it's too controlled an environment there's too much punishment, too much fear. I mean, I've seen in some organizations where uh, uh, leaders give out tickets or fines or however they call it uh, for infractions, <laughs> and they have a target, a quota of how many infractions you need to find. And so then eventually at the end of the month, you're going to find infractions just because you're not meeting your quota. And oh, so yeah. then the, the person ridicules the program, the person then becomes afraid of it. Um, and I've seen it myself uh, in the airline industry. People will openly talk about failures, mistakes, near misses. Um, it was just accepted. What wasn't accepted is hiding it. Uh, and then you go into yeah. other industries. And, and I remember as an example, there was one, one mine site where the trucks were rolling down, open pit mine, the trucks were regularly rolling down. And for, for several years, it was happening incredibly, incredibly dangerous event. Um, but nobody was actually talking to why it was happening, which is people were blinking their eyes, falling asleep which meant that <laughs> this cause couldn't be addressed because it was always hidden. It was always mm -hmm. a story for why it happened uh, as opposed to the open truth, again, because of a, of a fear, which may not necessarily be real, but there's still a fear that's present, which is becomes reality. And it, it lasts a long time. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those, that old adage, you know, for every thousand acts of kind, every thousand acts of kindness, it only takes one acts of act of meanness to destroy it all. Yep. Yeah, culture is hard to build and, and uh, it, it, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Right. And the memory is long. So you can tell, you know, when we're talking behavioral safety, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we often think it's the behavior of the employees that we're looking at. Well, right. I think this discussion kind of proves that the behavior of the managers mm -hmm. uh, is a big part of that. And, you know, where we're, we learn about like total safety culture or other kind of 
ideas of safety culture. That's where we say, hey, it's the everybody, everybody mm-hmm. in the uh, in the plant uh, that that's involved with it. And you know, not only uh, frontline workers and and their frontline supervision and, and other management, other functions in the at the site where mm-hmm. you know the the planners, the engineers, right. HR, uh, procurement. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're all behaving too. For in sure. ways that impact the frontline worker. Right? Finance and budgets. Exactly. Uh, they, they have exactly. huge impact. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're putting it all on the frontline worker when, in fact, when when these other functions are, are making decisions without the frontline workers' insights, without understanding the the honest uh, events that are happening to the frontline workers, when they're making these decisions uh, and they're, they're kind of pushing the problem to the frontline worker. You know, they're, they're making budgetary decisions, cutting costs, right? And they're saying, we can pull this off. Well, who's going to have to pull this off? <laughs> it's a frontline worker, right? When the maintenance planners are, are sending too many, too many folks to the unit and the, um, and the permitting, you know, like the, the right. folks that are supposed to be doing permits, instead of having a reasonable two or three to do a day, they're doing 12. And of course, they're doing couch permits, not actually doing the walkabouts. You know, and then that that problem gets pushed to the frontline worker, and it's something that happened by other people who aren't even aware, probably making decisions, you know, a long time before. So mm. when, when you know when we're talking about a culture, a culture needs to involve everybody, and, and oftentimes our behavioral programs and and even our safety programs are focused on that frontline worker, when in fact the sustainable solutions are going to occur in all these other functions that are setting the occasion throwing the problem to the frontline worker. And guess what? Frontline workers are heroes. You know, Mm -hmm. they're pulling it off with all those things that thrown to them. They're pulling it off, but sometimes they're pulling it off by taking shortcuts. And in some cases they're being praised for it. So so this topic is an incredibly uh, important one because I I completely, completely echo this. I've seen in more mature organizations, they, they really embrace that everybody, the finance person, the HR person, every support function needs to understand safety and the role, not only for their specific role, uh, but also in terms of how they influence others around safety. Uh, but in a lot of organizations, that gets shunned upon. They say, well, what does it have anything to do with the lawyer? What does it have anything to do with with the finance person? How have you helped bring those other support groups really to that understanding of really a chain of causality between your actions and and an outcome at the front line? Yeah, I mean, I just had that conversation yesterday uh, with, a, with a large uh, manufacturing site on the West Coast of the United States where they were just looking for, oh, let's let's put together a card and observe employees, and that that's what we need. And and I, you know, I said, no, that's not that's, <laughs> you know, first of all, that that uh, that may be a component of a program that works, but just doing that is gonna you're gonna end up, you know, failing or having to pay for observations. You know, and then right. you give them the fuller picture of, of what we just talked about. Uh, everybody involved, everybody understanding what behaviors. And this guy said, oh, I don't think I'll have that much control over it. And you know, right there, you know. You know, they're mm-hmm. not ready. They're not ready. Right. So to answer your question, like how how do you do that? It would just consider what, you know, the frontline worker does. They get they get observed, they get feedback on their behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. E- either from each other, from the their frontline manager or maybe a safety person. You know, they're they're getting feedback all the time on how to improve their behaviors. And, you know, we we sometimes collect data on that in a multitude of ways, behavioral observations, audits, right. uh, near miss reports and stuff like that. And we use that data to target behaviors that that we can 
that we can uh, we can improve, right? And then that mm -hmm. reduces injuries. Well, why it, the same principle occurs back in maintenance planning. Same thing occurs back in engineering and HR and finance. The problem is, you know, we don't blame them. We don't blame anybody. They're just not getting the visibility of the impact of their decisions. So when we have incident investigations that blame the worker by saying it's human error, instead of kind of asking, well, why was this <laughs> valve engineered this way to begin with, right? Right. Then we just stop right there and we blame the worker and then we call them stupid and they sign a piece of paper that they're stupid and they get coached and <laughs> blah, right? Right. But what we haven't done is taken that information and filter it back to a good feedback system as as kind of an observation of the engineers, mm. right? Engineers should, you know, once a month in their safety meeting, instead of talking about paper cuts and how to sit up straight in their chair, they should be reviewing the incidents that occurred at your plant and other plants and saying, okay, what is the engineering issue here? And, and how right. do we change our processes to listen to the frontline worker and integrate their feedback into our our, our designs and then be able to assure that our designs aren't causing risk. Now, mm -hmm. like you said, mature programs, mature engineering programs. Uh, I, I know of many in construction and mm -hmm. in the mining industry that, that do this. You know, their right. engineering systems are set up for this. But what I rarely see is that safety process of incident investigation, near miss, 1Ps, 1As, mm -hmm. and HOP and all that other stuff actually getting into the the way the engineers do their work, the continuous improvement cycles for the engineers, for procurement, for you know maintenance planning and all that other stuff. So right. you're right. The mature programs are there. So when you want to build a program, we call this a behavioral systems, mm -hmm. a behavioral systems analysis, where you start with some of the incidents on the front line, or better yet, let's start with a near miss uh, re reports or behavioral observations. So nobody has to get hurt for us to learn from this. And, you know, there's an analysis technique, uh, that, you know, we, from the science and, and we've been doing it over the last five years out in industry, getting kind of mm -hmm. perfecting it where you take that incident and and then you kind of go kind of upstream and find out where variance is and mm -hmm. get to a point where we kind of have the, the, the I don't want to say root cause, but a source, a kind of the original source. I right. uh, just did a uh, series of talks uh, based on experience I had at a refinery where they had a uh, forklift out in the unit with the mass of the forklift about to hit an overhead pipe. If that would have hit, that would have been oh, wow. a major injury, a release, <laughs> right. a process safety, shut down the plant, they lose money, right? So so uh, an observer, one of their behavioral safety observers were out there and saw this, right? And so when, when I was visiting, we did a, an analysis, a behavioral systems analysis on this, and it went back to permitting. If they would have done the permit correctly, if the mm -hmm. operator had done the permit correctly, they would have done a walkabout and said, here's the path you take, and here's why. You know, you got these overhead pipes here. You sure. wouldn't be able to get under that. And if they would have done that, of course, 100%, you know, the integrity of that, absolutely, they're not going to take that risk. Mm -hmm. So then you ask, why is there variance in the permitting? Well, that's when we found out that there was some 12 permits a day going out. That's totally out of control. There's no way. It takes like 20 minutes to do these walkabouts. Multiply 20 minutes times 12, it's their whole day. And they got another job to do, too. Mm -hmm. And then we worked that back to going, okay, who's sending these people for permits? Well, for the most part, it's it's the maintenance planners who are sending, you know, work crews out to do to send tools and equipment out for the maintenance crews to go and fix stuff. And, you know, and and that system's usually under control as well. If it's just the maintenance maintenance, you know, doing preventive maintenance and reliability checks and stuff like that. 
But then when you start analyzing that, you start seeing that everybody else in the company are calling these, they go, do our thing, do this thing, do this thing. And the operating system and the engineers and procurement. And, you know, by the time they get done, they're trying to please everybody and everything's a priority. And then it's get pushed and that that causes the permitting problem. So that's where you have this this out of control system within a function that's kind of pushing the problem to the frontline worker. And sure. you know, the frontline workers are pulling this off, but every now and then, you know, it's going to slip through the cracks. And so I think, you know, that analysis as we get better at it and as we teach it and we get more practice at it. And frankly, these other functions start understanding that they are a part of the safety culture and they actively right. are working toward the safety of the frontline employee as hard as the frontline leaders and the safety folks. You know, it's like, and I'm kind of riffing here. I'm going a little bit long, but the, you know, the, the safety manager, Mm-hmm. You know, if we just say safety is that person's job, then safety is nobody else's job. Sure. I like to I like to say safety is not your job. It's just something you do mm-hmm. because it's the right thing to do. Right. Safety has to be everybody's job. And there's a big education learning curve for folks that are in the air conditioned office doing professional work. Mm-hmm. And they need to be made aware of that front line. So I really encouraged by the Gimba of the right. lean Agreed. manufacturing where, you know, in lean manufacturing, if you got like a quality problem, you know, the vice presidents of Toyota in, in Japan go to the front line, watch manufa- you know, march the manufacturing process go, talk to the workers before they make, you know, kind of major changes. And that's exactly the same thing in 100%. safety. You know, in in South Africa before the pandemic, you know, I was dragging engineers and procurement officers and and executives out to the out to the the mines, uh, the the mining construction sites uh, in, you know, in the rural areas of of Africa. Uh, And they were begrudgingly going out there, kind of cussing under their breath, saying, what's this guy from the United States? And then they go (laughs) out there and they see it. And man, their right. light bulbs start flashing, and it, it's as if I, if as if I came in and, and did magic. But mm-hmm. no, you got to get out and see it. And that's, I think, if you want a quick answer to your question, which I didn't give you, but if you want a quick answer, <laughs> you know, how do you get these other functions involved in promoting the safety of the frontline employee? You just send them out, and you spend time with those frontline employees, watch yeah. them do their work. I would say with the the caveat, because I've seen it done well, and I've seen it done. Not as well. The Gemba way you're talking about is excellent because it's it's about uh, going, listening, hearing, uh, and understanding. I've seen mm-hmm. it where you've got the the CFO in a in a perfectly pressed suit coming and telling somebody what to do as they go and say, "Well, oh, you yeah. should do this, right?" And and I think that mm-hmm. does more harm than good. <laughs> yeah, but you know, here was my rule when I when I took these uh, these executives out to these mining sites. Uh, if you're going to go and give somebody feedback on what they should do. <laughs> <laughs> then that worker gets to tell you what you should do. And believe me, the workers have something to say to these executives. Exactly. <laughs> so so what do you have to say? So, some, the themes you talk about are, are um, incredibly, I, I completely agree with, with all the themes you've brought up, and I've seen this in real life many times again. Some people look at behavioral observation, you've talked about it before, as a means in a lot of organizations to create that or foster the blame or, or reinforce that it's the person at the front line making the mistake. I, I, I think that's uh, that's excessive, but I'd love to hear your perspective around that. Mm-hmm. And how do you shift yeah. the mindset around it? Because I think if yeah, it's that, poorly implemented, that's what happens. 
Yeah, I, I've seen it. Believe me, uh, we, you know, the, any of us in the behavioral safety field have seen programs. We've been asked to go mm -hmm. fix programs, and, and it, but it blows my mind after what some 30, 40 years of uh, the, yeah. you know, showing showing effectiveness of behavioral safety programs, that there are still people saying it's blaming the worker. And, right. and if you go, if you go into our science, I mean, deep into right. our science, all the way back to B. F. Skinner. Right. And you read some of his writings on the stuff he did with pigeons and rats. Right. <laughs> I mean, just let's go back that far and see what his philosophy was. He said, you can't blame the pigeon. Right. Right. If the pigeon doesn't do what you're, you hypothesized, you don't blame the pigeon. You know, <laughs> it was your fault. <laughs> right. You set up the, the experiment this way and the pigeon is just being a pigeon. Right. So, uh, you know, no blame is in the foundations of our science. And so somebody who says, behavioral safety because you know and i get it you were observing somebody and we're documenting their behavior and right. so therefore you think that we are blaming the person no it's not about the person i mean get mm -hmm. stop being so conceited right you know it, it, let's say let's say it is about the person in 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 psychology my um my colleagues who mm -hmm. study like personality and cognitive psychology and social right. psychology when they do their studies and they get a they get a finding. The effect size of that finding accounts for about five to ten percent of the variance. In other words, it accounts for about five to ten percent of the reason why the person did what they did. Right? Mm -hmm. When we do our studies, our behavioral studies uh, in in uh, in safety and other places, right. we're accounting for sixty, seventy, eighty percent. You know, when we do our intervention and, and they make a change in behavior, we're accounting for like 60, 70, 80 percent. So let me ask you something. Do we want to blame the person? Right. Which, again, mm -hmm. they're not to blame. You know, Deming taught us that every every guru tells us that. <laughs> yep. uh, but if we blame if we if we try to change the person. Right. Through training and exhortations. Mm -hmm. You know, you're only you're only counting for six to 10 percent of the variance, 20 percent of the best. I would personally rather go out and deal with the 60 to 80% of the variance that I can do something about. Right. And so when you look at, so then when you look at behavior, as Skinner taught us and others have taught us, you know, we say only about 20% of the reason why somebody did what they did is has anything to do with the person, their motivation, their mm -hmm. aptitude, their intelligence and stuff like that. 80% is due to the environment, the processes and the systems that we as managers created. Right. And that should be that should be pretty, you know, that should be pretty uh, exciting for managers. Now we have something we can change. You can't change a person. You're not their yep. parents. Right. But right. you can change the environment. So when you talk about behavioral safety, the observation system, what we're talking about is getting the opportunity to understand where the variance is, where at risk behavior is. So we can go and analyze it. You know, we have behavioral processes, analyze mm -hmm. it, the ABC analysis, behavioral systems analysis, other kind of analyses. And once we analyze it, we understand how we put that worker in the position to take that risk. If we don't have the observations, right. we really don't know where to target our work. Sure. And I've had many discussions with, with HOP you know, folks that, uh, you know, at first it was a big rift between behavioral safety and HOP. And it's a, you know, they're exactly the same dang thing. Mm -hmm. They help each other. With HOP, you've got all these systems improvements and Swiss yep. cheese and all that kind of stuff. But how do you know which one to use? Well, you have to go out in the Gemba. You have mm -hmm. to go out and observe and know which one it is. 
The second right. reason why, it, so that's a big reason why behavioral observations aren't about the person. But let me give you another reason that uh, the science <laughs> suggests um, why observations are, are beneficial. We found out that the person doing the observation is three times more likely to change their behavior than the person getting observed and getting feedback. Really? Yeah, why do you, th yeah, why do you think that is? Well, you know, you're doing your job day to day. You're in the flow. You know, you got your habits and all that kind of stuff. For sure. Step back as a worker and watch that task. You yep. know, impartially, you're going to notice things that you're not noticing while you're in the flow, mm -hmm. right? You're talking to a fellow worker and you're you're starting to identify at-risk behavior that you may not have uh, understood. Uh, or sure. you're identifying behavior and you start understanding why you're taking that shortcut and gives you insight. So, mm -hmm. you know, the observations, uh, you know, instead of blaming the person, it gives those frontline workers an opportunity to learn from their peers and to learn from just, you know, observing behavior in the environment that it's in. It's, right. it's the best training program out there for my money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I think the way you explain it is, is different. I think it's, not always explained that way. And I've too often seen somebody where it's like a checklist or they don't like to do it. So they're just going to give positive feedback um, as opposed to the way you're presenting it really from the Gemba view. You sound like Deming in so many mm -hmm. ways in terms of the, the approach is just a Deming for safety. Um, you're, you're looking at things you're trying to learn. You've got to have a growth mindset around it, but that means it's got to be engineered the right way that the, the, the system the behavioral observations. Absolutely. Are. You know, the messaging and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's too many, too many programs just became about the observation, getting that count up. Right. right? And you kind of got to do that at the beginning, but after like six months and you got a new program, yeah. I mean, that should be no big deal. What right. you're looking for in a successful behavioral observation program is the ability for that program to identify risks that are happening out there. Exactly. And, and too often everybody's like hundred percent safe. We're great. Like, no, that's not a good program. <laughs> You know, a good program is one that we can identify where risks are, and then a good program, you know, shows that the you know the analysis we do and the interventions we put in place changes that risk profile from you know uh, from somewhere we're concerned about mm -hmm. to successfully over time. You know, we're doing it uh, correctly every time, and that's right. that's the goal. We're not celebrating enough in our behavioral safety programs, mm -hmm. you know. And because you were just 100 percent all the time, it becomes very redundant, and you know people start asking, "Why am I doing these observations?" Or just it's just a paper chase. But if right. but if somebody you know we got data, uh, I, I work with a um, not for profit called the Cambridge Center for Behavioral yes. Science. Right. And the, the Cambridge Center, you can go to the website behavior.org, find the safety tab, and uh, we go in there and and you know we get data and we tell stories. And, and one of our, our we accredit the best behavioral safety programs in the world, mm -hmm. and one of the accredited sites. You know, we get data in their behavior change, and, and there's this one story where they were kind of 100% safe all the time, right? It was a, it was a kind of a dud program. Um, and then they, they found themselves during one particular spring, summer, with all these thunderstorms and lightning storms would come through. They're painters. They're on scaffolding in a refinery. And, you know, the, the, the employees are kind of complaining, you know, we're up at the scaffolding, metal scaffolding during mm -hmm. bad weather. They, you know, in a very, very sharp facilitator goes, hey, let's put it on the card. So they put, you know, working in, in bad weather on the card. Right. And then they started going, yeah, yeah, I'm working in bad weather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then where everything was 100% safe before, now all of a sudden, bam, working in bad weather is a big, big problem. Right. And so they, they took the data, took it to the safety manager. They took it to the owner of the company. 
And they said, look, we're look the data shows we're working in bad weather. And the safety person, the owner of the company said, you shouldn't do that. And they said, we know. So <laughs> they put together right there on a napkin, according to the legend. You know, they, they came up with a policy and they, they put it in writing and bam. And then, you know, it solved the problem. Right. So working in bad weather went down up to 100 percent. But the most fascinating thing is what happened afterwards. Suddenly they're having at risk behavior in what respirator use in other areas. Mm. These are things that were a problem before because these respirators are hot and right. sweaty and they pull them to the side, you know, while they're painting. Uh, they weren't, they weren't putting that on the form, but now that they saw that if they identified right. risk, it could solve one of their problems. All of a sudden, Hey, yeah, yeah the respirators, that. respirators are a problem. And then, you know, they get the respirator, they get new respirators and they fit and they're more comfortable. And then suddenly something else pops up. And so, right. you know, stagnant behavioral observation programs aren't because we're, we're, we're not having enough reinforcement. It's because we're not finding enough risk and we're not solving problems based on those observations. So, you know, ah, turning in a card means nothing versus turning in a card shows that where we're having problems and it's going to make my life better because I'm not going to take a risk in the future. Right. Big difference. Yeah. Because people see the value in in the process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's phenomenal. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing your stories. Uh, Your book definitely has got to be picked up. Dysfunctional Practices, available on Amazon, any, any bookstore. Uh, and I encourage you as well to visit your website, safety-doc.com. Uh, so thank you so much, Tim, for joining me today. It was a phenomenal conversation. You've brought so many really rich and important topics to the table. Hey, I really appreciate it. You know, we all have the same mission out there. We got to mm-hmm. share this. We got to share this knowledge. We got to share our practices and, uh, and, and make sure that we can all do what we can to reduce human suffering in all its forms. Yeah. And, you know, if I could just say one more thing, you know, during Absolutely. this pandemic, during this pandemic, you know, programs that really understand how to use you know, behavioral science to reduce injuries, we're using it to reduce COVID infections mm-hmm. in their plants. And, and we've seen uh, behavioral yep. operations in mental health in mm-hmm. other areas. So let's, you know, and I only know this because people are openly sharing it with me. So folks, right. we have the same mission, you know, uh, get out there and, and share your best practices freely. It, it should yeah. be done. And, it's you know, so I appreciate what you do with the safety guru podcast and uh, sharing that message is a big part of what I do. So thank you for having me on here as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Take care yeah. and be safe. and tell everyone. Thank you for listening to the Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Fuel your future. Come back in two weeks for the next episode or listen to our sister show with the Ops Guru, Eric McCroskey. 